It's odd to realize that Thomas Aquinas' sermons have garnered so little attention over the years, given that he was a prominent member of the order of preachers, a group that identified itself precisely by its members' aptitude for preaching. And that as a master of the sacred page at Paris and then elsewhere, one of Thomas's official duties, along with lecturing on the Bible and engaging in disputation, was preaching. All his extraordinarily valuable commentaries on the text of Aristotle were, by contrast, largely products of his spare time. According to his earliest biographers, Thomas was renowned as an excellent preacher, not only to the educated, but also to simple, uneducated laymen. Bernardo Gui reports that the common people, quote, heard him with great respect as a real man of God, whose words, quote, had a warmth in them that kindled the love of God and sorrow for sin in men's hearts. And yet, although Thomas was known as an excellent preacher, and although it was his constant practice to preach, it is only now, some, 100, some 133 years since the creation of the Leonine Commission, that a modern critical edition of all of Thomas's extant sermons by the late Father Louis Bataillon has finally appeared several years ago. We also now thankfully have in print an English translation of the extant sermons done by Father uh, Mark Robin Hoagland, published in the Catholic University of America Press series, The Fathers of Church Medieval Continuation. But readers should be forewarned. Even the devoted fan of Aquinas may find the sermons something of an odd read. Although in his biblical commentaries, Thomas is noteworthy for his devotion to the literal sense of the text, although I'll have something to say about that, yet in his sermons, he seems to garner all sorts of odd interpretations from just one or two words in the biblical text. Consider, for example, Sermon 16 in Bataillon's numbering, In Veni David, which is based on the passage from Psalm 82:21 that reads, I have found David my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, my hand will assist him and my arm will make him firm. In the body of that sermon, we find Thomas claiming that, quote, from these words, we can learn four praiseworthy things about this holy bishop, St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas of Lyra, on whose feast day, the feast day this sermon was preached. <clears throat> First, his wondrous election. Second, his unique consecration. Third, the effective execution of his task. And fourth, his immovable and firm stability. His wondrous election is shown in the words, I have found David my servant. His special consecration is shown where it says, I have anointed him with my sacred oil. The effective execution of his task is shown in the words, my hand will help him. His stable firmness is shown where it says, and my arm will make him firm. What Thomas's exegesis of the text seems to be suggesting then is that the psalmist, who lives roughly around the year 1000 BC, is neither referring to David in this psalm, even though the psalm says literally, I have found David my servant, nor even to Christ by means of an allegorical understanding of David. No, Thomas seems to be saying the psalmist is actually referring to the fourth century AD Saint Nicholas of Myra. At this point, even devoted fans of Aquinas may feel that Thomas is guilty of eisegesis rather than exegesis, transporting meanings into the text rather than digging meaning out of the text. Modern biblical exegetes, one hardly need add, would certainly draw this conclusion. But that judgment, I would suggest, is the result of a category mistake based on a misunderstanding of the purpose served by the opening biblical epigraph in a 13th century sermon. 
A careful reading of Thomas's sermons will show that the biblical verse that stands at the beginning of the text serves as a unique mnemonic device, a memory aid, which helped the listeners remember more easily the material covered in the sermon. As Mary Carruthers has noted in her fine study, The Book of Memory, a study of memory in medieval culture, quote, medieval culture was fundamentally memorial to the same profound degree that modern culture in the West is documentary. Thus, medieval scholars prize mnemonic devices to the same degree that modern scholars prize a thorough index, a good annotated bibliography, or a complete analytical concordance. <clears throat> Thomists, of course, have the invaluable index Thomisticus. Quote, ancient and medieval people reserve their awe for memory, says Carruthers, and their greatest geniuses they describe as people of superior memories. Indeed, quote, they regarded it as a mark of superior moral character as well as intellect. They would not, she insists, have understood our separation of memory from learning. In their understanding of the matter, it was memory that made knowledge into useful experience and memory that combined these dis disparate bits of information become experience into concrete moral judgment. Indeed, one of the great paradigmatic figures of this memory culture in the Middle Ages was, of course, Thomas Aquinas, of whom it was reported that he was able to dictate to three secretaries, and even occasionally to four, on different subjects at the same time. In her wonderful book, Carruthers compares this ability to dictate to several scribes at once with a memory device developed decades earlier by Hugh of St. Victor, whereby the novice could learn several psalms at once in such a way as to be able to move back and forth easily from any one place in one psalm to any of the places in the others. Quote, the fundamental principle, she says, is to divide the material to be remembered into pieces short enough to be recalled in single units and to key these into an easily reconstructable order. We will see a similar practice when we come to Thomas's use of the opening biblical epigraph. The use of such memory devices as Carruthers documents was a standard part of the basic medieval pedagogy in the language arts. Thus, the opening biblical verse, I'll say again, that prefaces Thomas's sermons and everybody else's sermons at the time is not the text to be preached on in the sense of doing an exegesis of the text as we would understand it or even as John Henry Newman would do it. It is rather a verbal mnemonic device systematically keyed to the material in the sermon. Allow me to illustrate with an example, and for this you may want to follow along on the handout. If you find the sermon, Ecce Sermon, uh, Ecce Rex Tuis, listed in Hoagland's translation as Sermon 5, also in, in Bataillon, you will find that the sermon is prefaced with the Latin verse, Ecce Rex Tuus Venit Tibi Mansuetus. Behold, your king comes to you meek. And of course, the rest of that, we end riding on a donkey. This is a passage from the prophet Zechariah quoted in Matthew's gospel during Jesus' entry in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Matthew 21.6 and Zechariah 9.9. The casual reader might be tempted to think with some justification. Here is a verse that deals with Jesus' coming into Jerusalem. The sermon is supposed to deal with Jesus' coming at Advent. It's an Advent sermon. So clearly, we assume the sermon will take its theme from and perhaps be a commentary on this biblical verse. As Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem, we expect Thomas to say, so too he will come triumphantly at the end of time. And if we had some experience with patristic or early medieval biblical commentaries, we might even expect allegories on, for example, the palm branches, the donkey, the city of Jerusalem, perhaps various other elements of the story. But that's not what happens at all. 
So let's focus instead on the passage as a mnemonic device and see what we discover instead. After a brief introduction and prayer, Thomas repeats the opening epigraph. Behold, your king comes to you meek. I'll do it in English if you don't mind, right? And tells his listener, in these words, the coming of Christ is clearly foretold to us. Then after a brief discussion of the four advents of Christ, the one in which he came in the flesh, the one by which he comes into our minds, the one in which he comes at the death of the just, and the one in which he will come at the end of time in judgment, the importance of distinguishing things for will become clear in a minute. Thomas continues, quote, and the first advent of Christ is touched upon in the aforementioned words, in which we can see four things. First, a demonstration of the coming of Christ, where it says, behold. Second, the condition of his coming, where it says, your king. Third, the humility of his coming, where it says, meek. And fourth, the utility of his coming, in the words, for you. In what follows, Thomas begins first, naturally enough, with unfolding the points he wishes to associate with the word behold. There are four things we can understand when we use the word behold, says Thomas. First, when we use the word behold, we can be asserting something of which we are certain, as in, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. Now, quote Thomas, just as some people doubted concerning the first coming of the Lord, so also some doubt concerning his second coming at the end of time. And yet in the Psalms, it assures us, quote, surely the Lord will come. So to reassure those who feared that the soul will not survive death, the opening biblical verse from Zechariah announces, behold. Next, when we say behold, we might be indicating a determination of time, as in, behold, my hour is come. So although the time of Christ's coming at the final judgment is not at a time determined for us because God wished us to always be vigilant in good works, Yet his coming in the flesh was at a determined time, and so the text says, behold. Third, when we say behold, we can be indicating the manifestation of a thing, as when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God. So then, although the coming of Christ into the mind is hidden, yet Christ's coming in the flesh was manifest and visible, so the verse says, behold, your king comes to you. And fourthly, when we use the word behold, says Thomas, we can use it for the strengthening of men, and this in two circumstances. First, when they have won victory over their enemies, as in, behold, the day has come which I desire, my enemies appear before me. And second, when they have attained the good, as in, behold, how good the Lord is. And since we have obtained both things in the coming of Christ, namely, we have peace and victory over the enemy, and we have joy from the hope obtained of future goods, so the prophet says, behold, all of this from that one word. Having finished with behold, Thomas turns next to the words, your king, which he says, quote, show the conditions of Christ's coming. Now a person's coming is awaited with solemnity for two reasons, says Thomas, either because of his greatness, if, for example, he's a king, or because of a special love, if, for example, he is an intimate friend, thus the word your. But Christ was coming as both king and friend, thus the combination your king. Since the Latin is rex tuus, whereas in English we say your king, right? Thomas focuses first on the things that follow from Christ being a king, rex, and then later takes up the things that follow from Christ being our friend, tuus, your. First, then a king suggests to Thomas unity. Second, fullness of power. 
Third, an abundant jurisdiction. And fourth, a king brings equity of justice. Regarding the first, there must be unity for there to be kingship. Otherwise, if there were many, dominion would not pertain to any one of them. Thus, we must reject Arius, says Thomas, from the word rex to us, right? Who was positing many gods, saying that the son was other than the father. Second, Christ is king in that he has fullness of power. Thus, laws are not opposed on, imposed on him. Rather, he has authority over the law, which is why he can say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, as if to say, I am the true king who can establish the law for you. Third, Christ has an abundance to his jurisdiction. Whereas other kings have dominion over this town or those cities, all creatures have been made subject to Christ. Fourth, Christ brings equity of justice. Whereas tyrants submit all things to their own utility, Christ orders all things to the common good. It is in all these ways, concludes Thomas, that Christ comes for you. Vain at Timmy. Pity. And with this, the sermon ends, or at least seems to. But if we have been paying attention, we know that Thomas has not yet finished unpacking. The technical term in Latin is dilatatio, root of our word dilation. So let us say Thomas has not yet finished dilating his opening verse from the Gospel of Matthew, ecce rex tuus veni tibi mensuitus. He has only dilated completely the words ecce and rex, but he still needs to dilate the words tuus veni tibi and mansuetus. And indeed, since this was a university sermon and preachers, preachers giving university sermons at the University of Paris were required by statute to give a collatio at Vespers later that same night, if we look at the collatio, and they were also required to use the same theme of verse they used that morning. If we look at the collatio that comes after this sermon in, in both uh, Hoagland and Bataillon, we find the same epigraph, after which Thomas briefly summarizes earlier, his earlier sermon and without missing a beat, picks up right where he left off with Tuus, your king. Now, Thomas can pick up, quote unquote, right where he left off without missing a beat precisely because his mnemonic device allows him to locate his exact position in the sentence review quickly the material already covered by correlating it to the keywords ecce and rex, and then proceed with this collatio according to the original plan. Now, I have in space here time to recount in detail the rest of Thomas's parsing of the verse, but those who are interested can see the substance of it on the handout. Briefly, Christ is our king because of the similitude of image between him and man, because of his special love for man, because of his solicitude and singular care for man, and because of his conformity or society with our human nature. He comes for us to manifest his divine majesty, to reconcile us to God from whom, uh, from whom through sin we were estranged as enemies, to liberate us from servitude to sin, and forth to give us grace in the present and glory in the future. You can see there's four of each of these, right? Each time. Finally, his meekness is shown in the meekness of this conversation, in his gentle correction of others, in his gracious acceptance of men, not only the just, but also sinners, and in his passion to which he was led as a lamb. All of that in just a few words. If we mistakenly thought Thomas was attempting an exegesis of the biblical text, behold, your king comes for you, meek and riding on a donkey, we might be skeptical that he could have really found all this theology in that one sentence. Rather, we would be likely tempted to say that Thomas is simply reading meanings into the text that he wants to find there, 
not deriving literal meaning from the text. But if we realize that the opening biblical verse is really an ingenious verbal mnemonic, everything changes. Think about how much the listener can recollect just by remembering one sentence. Behold reminds us of the four manifestations of Christ's coming in the flesh, into the mind of each person, to the just at the time of their death, and as the judge events the time. Your king reminds us of the condition of his coming, his unity with God the Father. He has fullness of power. He has dominion over all, and he brings equity of justice. The word your additionally reminds us of the similitude of image between, of image between him and man, his special love for man, his solicitude and singular care for man, and his conformity with our human nature. The words for you remind us of the utility of his coming, to manifest to us his divine majesty, to reconcile us to God from whom through sin we were estranged as enemies, to liberate us from servitude to sin, and to give us grace in the present and glory in the future. And the word meek reminds us of the manner of his coming. He showed meekness in his conversation, in his gentle correction of others, in his gracious acceptance of men, not only the just but also sinners, and in his passion to which he was led meekly as a lamb. Bingo. Each word in the sentence is a verbal cue meant to help bring to mind the content Thomas wishes to teach. To recollect the content, one only need begin by remembering the words of the opening biblical verse, which most of the, his listeners would have had memorized, and the rest will spill out naturally. Now, although many of us in the modern world might find Thomas' sermon style odd, but for those who prefer short, compact, and yet doctrinally rich sermons to long, flowery speeches that go on for an hour or more, Thomas' sermons might seem like a godsend. Sit and listen for 10 minutes, and you still go out with enough food for thought to keep you busy reflecting for days. If done well, these sermons showed the skills of a speaker who had to be smart, clever, and highly efficient. Features the increasingly urbane medieval townspeople who had to listen to them understood and respected. It's not that the busy townspeople of the Middle Ages didn't want holiness. It's simply that, as a general rule, they wanted their holiness delivered in a packages that were smart, clever, and highly efficient. Thus, although it may seem odd to us now, Thomas's sermon style was actually considered thoroughly modern for its time. Indeed, this style of sermon was actually called the modern sermon style, sermo modernus as opposed to the sermo-antiquus style that involved a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire gospel. And it was a style of preaching that became very popular in the mid-13th century. John of Wales, a Franciscan master of Paris around 1270, wrote in his De Arte Praticandi, for example, that the older sermo-antiquus style homily, quote, did not suit particularly well with modern listeners who liked to see the clear articulation of a sermon develop from a scriptural thema. Wales did like this, actually. He thought this was a bad idea, but he was like, that, that's what everybody wants now. <laughs> bad idea, anyway. And the Italian Dominican Fra Giacomo de Fuggi Truginano, I'm sorry, prior of St. Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome, writes in 1290 that the old style was suitable only for preaching to the ignorant. The type of sermon, quote, more common to modern preachers, says Giacomo, was the sort we have seen St. Thomas preach in which an opening biblical thema was divided into various parts. In the modern sermon, the preacher would start by stating his thema biblical verse, and after a brief introduction, or prothema, sometimes there would be, introducing a prayer, he would then restate his thema and divide the opening verse into several parts, each of which was in turn associated with a separate section or member of the sermon. The preacher would then expand upon each part in turn, a process, as I've said, called dilatatio, 
keeping the order of his presentation clear by continuing to return to the words of the opening biblical thema. Among the authors of the major medieval preaching manuals, the thema, that is the opening biblical verse, was often likened then either to the root of a tree or to the trunk from which sprung the various branches. The preaching manuals of the 13th and early 14th century described dozens of possible ways of doing both the divisio and dilatatio, many of which I detail in my book on Thomas's sermons, but which we haven't had time to go into here. Now, one of the great benefits of the Sermon Moderna style of preaching, however, was that it turned one or more of the biblical verses specified by the lectionary for a specific liturgical day into the means for what in the classical rhetorical tradition would have been called inventio, that is, finding and developing one's topic. But not only inventio, dispositio, organizing one's material, and memoria, the remembering of one's material. Recognizing this provides valuable context to help us understand more fully the famous story about Aquinas' inception Principium Address, Riggins Montes. It is said that Thomas was nervous about his inception. As is generally well known, there had been a dispute between the secular masters and the mendicants, and it was only due to the forceful intervention of Pope Alexander IV that the order was given that the mendicants be readmitted straight away to the faculty. Thomas was the one chosen to take the chair designated for the Dominicans, even though he was not yet the required age, being only 31 or 32, while the university statute stipulated that one should not incept before age 35. Thomas was terribly upset, Father Weisheipel tells us in, bio in his biography, basing his judgment on several contemporaneous sources. At first, the young friar, quote, tried to excuse himself on the grounds of insufficient age and learning but his efforts were for naught. Since obedience left him no escape, writes Weisheipel, he had had recourse as usual to prayer. What happened next is attested to by an equally large number of contemporary sources. Quote, with tears, writes Thomas's medieval biographer, Bernardo Gui, Thomas begged, quote, for inspiration as to the theme he should choose for his inaugural lecture. Afterward, he fell asleep and seems to have had a very clear dream in which, according to Bernardo Gui, he seemed to see an old man, white hair and clothed in a Dominican habit, who came and said to him, Brother Thomas, why are you praying and weeping? Because, answered Thomas, they are making me take the degree of master and I do not think I am fully competent. Who of us ever did, anyway. Moreover, I cannot think what theme to take for my, my inaugural lecture. To this the old man replied, do not fear. God will help you to bear the burden of being a master. And as for the lecture, take this text. Thou waters the hills from thy upper rooms, the earth shall be filled with the fruit of thy works. This is Riggins, Montes, De Superioribus, Suis, De Fructus, etc. Then he vanished. And Thomas awoke and thanked God for having so quickly come to his aid. Modern readers may remain skeptical about whether the source of the verse was St. Dominic. St. Thomas actually never identifies the man. But it's noteworthy that Thomas doesn't get from the, what Thomas doesn't get from the man in the dream is it what Thomas, that, I'm sorry, but it's no three that Thomas doesn't get from the man in the dream what his subject matter should be or what points he should make. What comes to Thomas in the dream is simply the thema verse, the mnemonic text that will serve as a structuring device for everything else that follows. And once he has that, he has the key. This is interesting for many reasons, not the least of which this is the process is unlike that of the ancient Greek orators who crafted their orations first and only later associated the points with their mnemonic structuring device, such as the rooms in their house or the particular sites on a walk around the city. It would likely never have occurred to an ancient orator to imagine that he could create a speech 
by taking his usual mnemonic walk around the house or the town. The topics of a prospective oration, a speech in the Senate, let us say, or a speech on behalf of a plaintiff in court, would have been entirely unrelated to the architectural elements and would have been associated with them only later when he was memorizing the speech. Thomas and his contemporaries, by contrast, began with the mnemonic device as a way of discovering and developing the topic. In the ancient world, the process of finding the points or topics for a speech was called inventio. Choosing how to develop or arrange these points into coherent, persuasive whole was called disputatio, I mean, dispositio, arrangement. And these were distinct from the process of memorization, which came later. By the time Thomas was crafting his Principium, the two processes had become united in a unique and important way. Undoubtedly because the words of the biblical text were thought to possess a special fecundity that other mnemonic devices lacked. As I've argued in more detail elsewhere, quote, medieval preachers knew these five canons as they had all studied their Quintilian Cicero and the Rhetorica ad Herenium, which they thought Cicero wrote. What the Sermon Moderna style offered them was a new method of inventio, that is, to discovering the topics and one's approach to the topic. This was an inventio guided by the structure of the opening biblical fame of verse, by the meanings that could be associated with the words in it. The words of the verse determine, right, uh, the words of the verse suggested the topics to be covered, and the order of those words would determine the dispositio, or as the medievals called it, the divisio of the parts of the speech. The Sermo Moderna style became popular precisely because it provided not only a method of inventio, finding a topic, one keyed purposefully to the scriptural reading for the day, but also a method of constructing and ordering the material of the sermon. The whole process was designed to foster memoria, since the opening biblical verse functioned, as we have shown repeatedly, as we've shown, as an elaborate mnemonic device to help the listeners associate the topics covered with the words in the verse. Thus, I would say what we have been exploring here was a new sort of rhetoric, one that constituted a significant development on the classical rhetorical tradition handed down to the Middle Ages by the likes of Cicero and Quintilian. This new rhetoric of the Middle Ages was a rhetoric of preaching, a rhetoric based on scripture and directed toward the goal of helping people hear the word of God more effectively in order to live it more faithfully. So that's my introduction to Thomas's style of preaching. Do I still have a few minutes? Yes, according to this I do. All right, like a minute, all right. Understanding that style has multiple benefits, let me say. First, not only will this help you read and understand Thomas's sermons more easily with better understanding, but also since this modern sermon style of preaching was common in the 13th century, you will also have gained a valuable introduction to the sermons of pretty much any other preacher of the mid to late 13th century, such as Bonaventure, St. Albert the Great, Henry of Ghent, Giles of Rome, and others. And since the Sermon Moderna style remained popular for several centuries, about 150 years actually, learning to read the sermons of Aquinas intelligently provides a good introduction to the sermons of late medieval and early Renaissance period. A second benefit of learning how Thomas used the Bible as a structural mnemonic device in his preaching is that once Thomas had become a master of the sacred page, one of his duties was to comment on the scriptures. And for each of these scriptural commentaries, he wrote a prologue, which was in effect a short sermon. All of them have to be done in this same style at Paris. It's very clear. When Thomas left, he stopped doing it. When he comes back to do Paul and John, he does it again. Uh, so understanding how Thomas structured and developed his sermons will also serve as a key to understanding how he wrote his biblical prologues, each of which, okay, Francis, I can't talk to you now. Okay, all right, sorry, that was just rude. Okay, will also serve as a key to, this is public. Okay, all right, will also serve as a key to understanding how he wrote his biblical prologues, each of which is fascinating and theologically revealing in its own right, 
and most of which have been better preserved, actually, than most of his extant sermons. And third, understanding these medieval sermons reveals that 13th century biblical commentaries were devoted in large part to providing material for preaching. It is not uncommon, for example, to hear historians claim that 13th century biblical commentaries are akin to scholastic disputed questions. They have come to this conclusion, however, I would suggest, because they have failed to read those commentaries in light of the contemporary 13th century summa modernist style of preaching. My claim is that these biblical commentaries make constant use of the methods of the summa modernist style. I've written an article on this. You can show it. And purposely incorporated material that the master knew would be especially useful for students when they undertook the task of writing their own sermons. While it is certainly the case that young prospective preachers learn to preach by listening to preaching every day, they were also prepared to preach, to preach, I submit, by the way they were taught the scriptures. We, of course, do not have this same wisdom today. We teach people about the scriptures with material you could never use in preaching. If you try, it's a disaster. All right. Consider just to cite one example, and then I, I'll, 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 uh, I'll conclude. Thomas's comment from his early cursory commentary on Isaiah, on the passage uh, in Isaiah 62.1, which says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for the sake of Jerusalem I will not rest, till her just one come forth as brightness. Noticing that it is God's just one who comes forth with brightness, Thomas, Thomas comments, this is his commentary on Isaiah, right, on that passage. Christ is brilliant, first, as the image of the Father. He is the brightness of glorious Father, and the figure is substance. Second, as the light of the saints, in the brightness of the saints before the day star I have begotten you. Third, as the fullness of glory, his face shone like the sun. Fourth, as upright teaching, the nation shall walk in your light, and kings in the brilliance of your rising. Note again the fourfold list, with each item accompanied by an associated biblical verse. This is a salient feature of Sermo-Modernist style preaching. There's more, but uh, I need to, since we're at time, uh, um, if you're interested, you can see there's another example on the handout, which is very interesting if you want to talk about, we can talk about during the question session, but let me just uh, finish up, right? Uh, let me conclude. Let me suggest in conclusion that even if dialectic, right, uh, was important in the Middle Ages, right? Doing this kind of exercise, noticing the specific words in the biblical text, imagining the various uses of the word, and then finding the places in the scripture where the word is used that way, with that reference, and then doing it repeatedly was precisely the sort of thing that made someone like Thomas the wonderful preacher he was to become. Even if dialectic and disputation were key motivating factors drawing students to parents, Paris, church authorities and the leaders of the new religious orders clearly viewed the emergence of this new educational institution, the medieval university, as an opportune place to train theologically well-formed and rhetorically well-trained preachers for preaching to the laity. Thomas, as a member of the order of preachers, did his part, both as a student and as a master, to foster what has been described by later historians as the homiletic revolution of the 13th century. Thank you very much.